Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 51 of the podcast. I'm really excited today because we're starting something brand new. We're going to be looking at each episode of Stargate Universe, just as we've done with Star Trek Picard Season 1 and Star Trek Discovery Season 3. This is a very divisive show because it was a significant departure from the previous two Stargate TV shows in terms of tone, shooting style and storytelling. Stargate Universe was heavily influenced by Battlestar Galactica. It's a much more character-driven show, it's more serialised and it's got a darker, more serious tone. The show is hardly what you'd call grimdark, but the characters have a lot more flaws than you'd expect from a Stargate show. But in my mind, that just gives them more room for growth. I've loved Stargate from the beginning. I was a big fan of the 1994 film, and I loved both SG-1 and Atlantis. The third series is actually a great launching on point, so if you decided long ago that Stargate wasn't for you, it's worth giving SGU a try. Now a little note for those of you watching on YouTube. I recorded the bulk of this episode a few months back before I decided to show live action video on the YouTube version of the podcast. So for the bulk of this week's episode and next week's episode, you won't have to look at my ugly mug. Lucky you. But by episode 3, it'll all be back to normal. The description on Gateworld reads... When a research team is forced to evacuate their secret base, they find themselves on board a derelict ancient vessel that is many galaxies away from Earth. This episode was written by Brad Wright and Robert C. Cooper. It was directed by Andy Makita, and it first aired on the 2nd of October 2009. Stargate Universe was not well received by all fans. Many bemoaned the lack of humour, the darker, grittier tone, and the more morally ambiguous characters. But let me be very clear about this. Not everyone disliked the show. Many of us loved it, and still consider it our favourite Stargate show to this day. And I'm talking people who loved SG-1 and Atlantis. But it is a different show, and may appeal to a different audience with different tastes. My first introduction to the show was the first three episodes edited together into an extended pilot movie on DVD. It would be months, maybe a year, before I would get to see the rest of season one. It's hard to put into words just why I like this show so much, but this three-part pilot really grabbed me with both hands and wouldn't let go. The gritty, realistic tone of the show just felt like a breath of fresh air to me and the wonder of them being on this ancient spaceship so far from home with no idea what it was all about. That captured my imagination. I love the character focus. SG-1 and Atlantis both followed a similar pattern in terms of their characters. They both had a four-person team who went through the gate, plus a commander and support staff back at their home base. Universe broke way out of this mould. These people are not the best of the best. They're not all military. They're definitely not supposed to be on this ship. In that sense, I get quite a Farscape vibe from the show. These people are not a crew. They're a collection of people who have been forced together under unusual circumstances 
and forced to live and struggle together. So of course there's going to be conflict. Add to that, Colonel Young is no Jack O'Neill. He may not be that great an officer, and he admits this himself. But he tries. He really does. And we see a lot of growth in the character over the two seasons. And Dr. Rush, well, he's brilliant, but a very, very flawed man. Seriously, I eat this stuff up. It's great. But let's actually look at the episode. It begins in space. A ship jumps out of hyperspace and slowly approaches the camera as the credits roll. We've never seen a ship like this before, but we'll soon come to know her as Destiny. You get to see a whole lot of detail on this ship as the camera zooms in. It's nice to see a Stargate show in high definition. It's all pretty ominous. The ship is deserted. But then we pan into the gate room and see the gate spinning. And then the wormhole engages and people start flying out of it. It's a mysterious beginning. We have no idea what it's all about. This first episode makes very effective use of non-linear storytelling. We keep flashing back and forth between the destiny and the earlier stuff that explains how our characters got there. At this point, we're wondering about these people. This is not your typical SG team. We've got military, some guy in glasses dressed as a civilian, and a teenager in a red t-shirt. The opening makes us hungry to know more. But we can tell straight away there is something ominous about Dr. Rush. Everyone else is panicking, but he's looking around this ship with quiet lust and a dark satisfaction. The last one to come through is Colonel Young. He hits his head pretty badly and passes out, after placing Lieutenant Scott in charge. We won't see him, other than in flashbacks, until the second part when he wakes up. The episode does a good job of showing visually that this is a much older Stargate, earlier technology. The whole gate spins, which is different, and when the wormhole closes, it vents out all this steam as if the gate struggles to cool itself. The ship jumps back into hyperspace, but we have no idea what's going on at the time. We just see a weird stretching effect on the picture, and the characters react with the same confusion we do. Then we flash back to Eli, playing a video game. He solves a difficult puzzle. And the next thing you know, Jack O'Neill is knocking on his door with Dr. Rush. It seems they embedded a top secret program in the game, and Eli solved what nobody else could. Lucky him. I love Jack's reaction here, when Eli disbelieves them, and is hesitant to sign the non-disclosure agreement. Jack's got no time for this, he can just beam Eli up to the ship. No worries. This is a risk of course, but I guess if he still doesn't sign, nobody's going to believe him. But I think Jack knows people well enough to know he'll sign. The ship is the Hammond, named after the late General Hammond. We learn a little about Eli. We know he's not unemployed because he's lazy. He's a genius, but his mother has health issues that require him to look after her. The ship is leaving orbit to travel to another planet, but Eli would at least like some pants before they leave. And this is a good reminder that while this show is much more dramatic and serious than SG-1 or Atlantis, it does have humour. This line from Eli is pretty funny, and nicely in line with the type of humour we often got from Jack O'Neill. There's a nice sequence where Eli watches a bunch of training videos, 
hosted by none other than Dr. Daniel Jackson. This is a good way to get up to speed with all things Stargate, both for Eli and for the audience who may not have watched the previous shows. We also get some important backstory. Ancient ruins were found on an alien planet two years ago. There, they found a nine-symbol address. We know that the gate addresses within the local galaxy contain seven symbols. Eight-symbol addresses call gates in another galaxy, like an area code. But the Stargate has nine chevrons, so what is the meaning of the ninth symbol? Nobody has ever managed to successfully dial a nine-symbol address. Eli gets to call his mum on the phone. He tells her he's doing some top-secret work for the Air Force. She is up on her feet walking around the house and it looks like she's wearing a uniform of some kind. So she's got a job. So I'm confused as to the nature of her sickness and why it prevents Eli from pursuing his career. It seems if he got a job, he'd be able to help pay for her medical expenses. Anyway, the Air Force are going to take care of him while he's away, and her. And he meets Chloe for the first time. She's the only other person on this ship his age. I think he immediately notices that she's quite an attractive young woman. He's surprised to find out he's quite the celebrity on this ship. Anyway, these two characters are immediately pretty good together. Then we jump back to the present. Eli and Rush discover they're on a spaceship, travelling faster than light, somehow, but not through conventional hyperspace. Rush has identified the ship as being ancient technology. Not only meaning it was built by the aliens that we call the ancients, but that it is old, really old. And that's when they notice the air is thin. The life support is failing on this ship. And that's totally believable. How many millions of years has it been flying through space? We meet Colonel Young through a flashback, talking to his wife before he left to go on this mission. His career with the SGC is putting a lot of stress on his marriage. He's always off-world and he can't even tell her. It's obvious pretty early on that Colonel Young is not cut out of the same heroic mould as O'Neill, Shepard and Mitchell. Our introduction to Scott comes with him having sex with a female officer in a storage room. <laughs> Real classy, Scott. It's not always fair to judge people based on first impressions, but I have to say this scene really colours the way I see his character throughout the show. Eli, Chloe, her father, the Senator, and Rush arrive on the planet that houses Icarus Base. The Stargate on this planet doesn't accept incoming wormholes, which is why they had to come here on a ship. It's a plot convenience so that we could have the scenes on board the Hammond. The puzzle Eli solved was the problem Rush has been working on for ages. He's trying to figure out how to dial the 9 Chevron address. Rush has been working on it for ages, and Eli has solved it. Except that it still doesn't work. This gate is powered by the planet's core itself, getting the energy output just right is the challenge. While Rush keeps trying to solve the problem, Eli is invited to a special dinner, and he's happy to attend. Meanwhile, we get a hint of Rush's backstory. There was a woman who was in his life. Judging by his tears, she's probably dead. Back in the present, Senator Armstrong is pretty upset about them being on this ship and tries to order Scott to get them back to Earth right away. But sometimes you can't just order things to be the way you want them. 
Rush is trying to get life support back online, but Eli doesn't trust what he's doing, and emotions are very high. Greer is ready to shoot him, especially given he blames Rush for them being on the ship in the first place. It's a tense situation. In the end, the button does nothing, good or bad. I wasn't a fan of Greer at the beginning. He comes across so cocky, so sure of himself. He loves himself just a little bit too much. Of course, he'll grow on me as the season progresses. And he was actually in the brig back on Icarus. He was only just released because Icarus base is under attack by the Lucian Alliance. And this is where we see that Samantha Carter is still in command of the Hammond. I believe she left Atlantis to take up this post. This episode has a lot to do. In between all that is happening, it has to set up the backstory of a large cast of characters, certainly a bigger cast than any Stargate show before it. We meet Johansson and Camille. Johansson, the medic on the ship, was actually planning to leave the Stargate program before all this happened, and Camille is a civilian representative of the IOA, an international group that oversees the Stargate program. It's nice to see the pyramid ships and death gliders in this first episode. They're a remnant of SG-1 and the Milky Way galaxy, so we won't be seeing them moving forward. Rush is desperate to figure out this nine-symbol issue now. This planet has unique properties. They may not be able to get the address to work anywhere else. And this bombardment could literally cause the planet to blow up. This is Rush's last chance to realise his life's work. They figure out if this is not a power problem, maybe it's an issue with the address. Maybe they're using the wrong point of origin because the gate was meant to be dialed from somewhere else. The gate is supposed to be dialing Earth to evacuate the base, but Rush cancels it so that they can try dialing his nine symbol address instead. He has some justification for this beyond his own personal selfish need to complete his work. He says they can't risk dialing Earth. The energy of the explosion if the core goes, could be devastating if it travels through the wormhole. And that's a fair point. But is there really a risk of that, or is it just a convenient excuse for Rush? As Young says, he could have dialed somewhere else, anywhere else in the Milky Way. And it works. The address connects. Wherever it leads to, they've established a connection. In the end, they have to go through the wormhole to wherever it leads, because anywhere is better than here. The planet is about to blow. Back in the present, Rush finds a star map detailing the ship's journey. It began at Earth. It left the galaxy travelling past Pegasus, past galaxy after galaxy. It's impossibly far away, several billion light years from home. I got chills when I first watched this and realised just how far away they were. Most of the people on base have to evacuate through the gate, but Colonel Talford beams up to the Hammond and remains in the Milky Way galaxy. And the planet blows up, taking the Lucian Alliance ships with it. Back on Earth, Jack is working at the Pentagon, as he has since he left the day-to-day -day running of the SGC. Walter is there with him, not at the SGC. Together, Carter and O'Neill realise that nobody came through the gate to Earth. So where did they go? Which takes us right to the beginning of the episode, where they first came through the gate onto the ship. And that's the end of part one. So they're gonna explore the ship, looking for whatever they can find. Scott is taking charge. 
I like how they acknowledge that this ship is really old and there could be parts that are damaged or dangerous. And then Scott looks at the woman he was having sex with in the closet and says, You're James, right? Ouch. She gives him a death stare and says, Yes, Lieutenant. Scott has had her, and now he's ready for his next conquest. We'll see who that is later. I really feel for James in this moment. Scott's clearly trying to pretend he doesn't really know her, but it feels more than that. Like he's just brutally tossed her out. Of course, no one is buying it. Greer can see exactly what's being said here and what's not. Scott finds a door he can't open and orders Eli to open it. The other side is a room open to vacuum. There's a big hole in the bulkhead. Another great reminder of how old and unmaintained this ship is. It's a dangerous place. Meanwhile, Rush gets out a device. One part of it might be familiar, the stone. Yes, this is an ancient communications stone, like the one that first sent Daniel and Valor's minds into the Ori galaxy back in SG-1 Season 9. Although the base plate is human technology. The device allows two people to swap bodies across unimaginable cosmic distances. This was a very cool addition to the Stargate universe. It allows the crew, stranded on Destiny, countless galaxies away, to communicate with people back home on Earth even have little visits home. And we get a little cameo from Dr. Lee, who appeared in both SG-1 and Atlantis. Apparently, like most of the former SGC staff, he's now posted at the Pentagon in Washington with Jack. I can't help but wonder if the SGC is still operating in Cheyenne Mountain. Remember, last we saw of Atlantis, it was on Earth, and Pegasus Gates take precedence over Milky Way Gates meaning Atlantis could be the new SGC. We don't know if the city ever returned to Pegasus. We know there were plans for it to happen in stories that were never shot, but in terms of on-screen canon, it's a total mystery. So Rush swaps bodies with Dr. Lee and is effectively now standing in a room in the Pentagon. After his conversation, which you'll notice we don't actually see, he goes and informs everybody that there is no hope of rescue. The only means to dial this ship from the Milky Way galaxy was destroyed. And then he says, in light of my knowledge and experience, General O'Neill has placed me in charge. What do you think was really said between Rush and O'Neill? I don't think they ever outright say it in this episode, but it becomes pretty clear as the season goes on that Rush is outright lying about being put in charge. He seems pretty hesitant to allow Senator Armstrong to use the stones himself. But the good senator is not in good shape. Camille doesn't recognise Russia's authority. As the only IOA representative on the ship, she probably feels she should be in charge. Most people want to focus on getting home. Rush says that may not even be possible. And he is right. There's no way home right now. Their primary focus needs to be on making the ship habitable and safe. That will keep them alive in the immediate term. But Rush has his own reasons for not wanting to find a way home. He spent his entire career trying to get here. Going home is the last thing he wants. And as we get to know him better, we'll learn that he's not above putting his own needs before the needs of everybody else. 
Scott is able to salvage a situation that's on the brink of turning into a riot. Colonel Young has put him in charge of all military personnel. They are required to follow his orders, and as he says, if anyone else gets out of line, we'll lock you down. Because they can. And this is the kind of push people around because we have big guns mentality that I don't really like about the military. You see it in the movie Avatar, and you see it sometimes in the show. But I'm not sure it's representative of the real military. Real world military people are there to serve, and I think most of them take that responsibility very seriously. I don't think that they would naturally throw their weight around unless there was a real cause for it. Anyway, Scott has Rush's back for now, because he knows they need him, but he warns Rush to try dialing the gate back to Earth. He already knows Rush has his own agenda. Colonel Young finally wakes up. Johansson is treating him. She brings him up to speed on the situation. When he learns that Rush claims to be in charge, he won't have a bar of it. But he can't do much because he can't feel his legs. Johansson thinks it's temporary, but she's not a doctor as such, she's a military medic. We know that Johansson's tour of duty has ended. She had a scholarship to study something. She shouldn't even be here. Bad luck. If only she'd left Icarus a day earlier. We see a Kino for the first time. A little ball floating down the corridor. Eli found them. They're remote control flying drones. Eli named them after a Russian rock band, I think. He says, I named it after the Russian... And then Scott cuts him off. But a Google search for Kino Russian leads us to this band. I'm not sure if there's any significance to flying cameras, or if Eli just likes their music. If anybody knows more, let me know in a comment, or an email to adam at adamdavidcollings.com. Anyway, they have a whole supply of them on the ship. They'll prove useful to check out what's on the other side of the Stargate, much like a MALP. Rush has figured out that the CO2 scrubbers are failing, which makes a lot of sense given how many millions of years old this ship is. I really like that they spend so much time in early season 1 dealing with stuff like this, just struggling for the necessities of life on this alien ship. Unlike SG-1 and Atlantis, which were quick to introduce the new big bad guy, this show takes a different tack. Senator Armstrong has a real problem. He's badly bruised, and if he takes his heart medication, he'll bleed internally. But if he doesn't take them, he could die anyway. Chloe takes the pills, making the decision for him. They seem to have some serious problems related to air. First of all, they have to seal off the leaks to prevent the loss of atmosphere. If they can do that, they'll have a day or two before the build-up of CO2 kills them, due to the failing scrubbers. They need to replace the failed compound that treats the air. The main air leak turns out to be one of the shuttles. There's a problem with the shuttle door. It can only be closed from inside the shuttle. Rush is quick to say somebody needs to go in there and close it, thus sacrificing their life. Of course, you know he won't volunteer to do it himself. Eli has started vlogging using the Kino. Scott finds this annoying, but Eli points out this needs to be documented. Maybe someday someone will find this ship and know what happened to them all. He's right, but he's possibly having a little too much fun with it. But why not? Let the guy have a little fun. 
He's probably going to be dead soon anyway. Eli's interest in filmmaking will continue throughout the series. Anyway, Scott's point is that they should be focusing on staying alive, not leaving messages behind for after they're dead. They have a dilemma to solve. Who is going to give their life to seal the door? Rush is immediately coldly pragmatic about it. He looks at the list of people, noticing those who are injured. He wants to find out which ones will have valuable skills that could come in useful. I mean, he's not wrong, and yet he's suggesting they find the expendable. He's reducing people's lives to an assessment of how useful they are to survive on their ship. That's cold. Really, really cold. Young's approach is to sacrifice himself. He can't ask anybody else to make a sacrifice like this. Although military personnel do sometimes order people to their death. Scott won't let Young sacrifice himself. He's the leader and they need him. While everybody is arguing about it, Senator Armstrong leaves his room armed with a gun. He's going to do it. He's probably going to die from his injuries anyway. He's going to close the door. This is a heartbreaking moment as Chloe runs through the corridor screaming, Dad, no! As he gives his life to save everybody else. It's pretty powerful stuff. What other show has ever portrayed a politician as so noble a hero? This breaks all the stereotypes. So in her grief, Chloe goes and starts hitting Rush. She blames him, not entirely fairly, but his attempt to comfort her quickly turns into a justification of his innocence. Why none of this is his fault. Rush admits that as human beings, everyone is invaluable, which I agree with, but I'm not sure he really believes that. Young is back on his feet now, against medical advice, but he needs to help solve their problems. He asks Camille to keep people calm. She'd be good at that. Scott spends a little time sitting with Chloe, trying to comfort her. He wants to hear about the senator. The man died so I could live. I'd like to know more about him. I get on Scott's case a bit in this episode, and I'll have some more negative things to say about him, but I like this moment. I think in this moment he genuinely cares and wants to help Chloe. Anyway, it's a nice character scene. Rush has learned the name of the ship is Destiny. He's also learned that it was sent out unmanned and automated. The plan was that they'd eventually use the gate to get out to the ship once it was far enough out. They never did. They probably learned to ascend before it ever happened. Ascension, of course, is a process the ancients learned millennia ago, where they transform from physical beings into beings of energy and thought. They go to a higher plane of existence. We learn a lot about this in SG-1 and Atlantis. At this point, I'm wondering about how all of this fits together in the timeline. So I've looked it up. The Ancients, who were originally known as the Alterans, came from another galaxy. A group of them left that galaxy after a big divide between them and the others who called themselves the Ori. Between 50 and 30 million years BC, they eventually settled in the Milky Way galaxy, choosing to live on Earth as the first form of humanity. It was after this that they launched Destiny, before they had even seeded the Milky Way with stargates. 
Later, they built Atlantis and left for the Pegasus Galaxy. So, there was at least 20 million years between the launch of Destiny and the time the Ancients ascended. In all that time, they never gated the ship. Had it still not reached the location where they wanted to board, or were there other reasons? We still don't know why the Ancients launched the ship. Not yet. Riley has found the address to dial the gate back to Earth. It wasn't that hard to find. Young assumes Rush already knew but didn't tell anyone. They don't know the point of origin, so they'll have to use trial and error. They have 36 tries, but they could run out of power before they find the right combination. The issue becomes moot when the ship drops out of FTL and the gate starts dialing on its own. This is part of what the ship is programmed to do. Rush believes the ship has detected a stargate on a nearby planet that may have what they need. The ancients sent out unmanned ships before Destiny to seed planets with stargates so that the crew could easily visit planets once they arrived. So this gives the show a familiar yet different concept. Destiny is on autopilot. It flies from system to system. There are stargates out there, which means the characters can still go through the gate and explore, just like any Stargate show. Except the gates are much shorter range than those in the Milky Way and Pegasus. And Destiny leaves orbit after a certain time limit, which adds a ticking clock element. This all makes it feel familiar and yet fresh. I love it. Rush has made the reasonable assumption that whatever they need is on the other side of the wormhole, the keynote tells them about the atmosphere of the planet on the other side. There are four other gates in range. Rush is convinced this is the planet they need to look at because it's the one the ship chose. So Young assembles a team. Palmer, the geologist. Franklin, a civilian scientist. Rush, Scott, Greer. And Eli wants to go too. Rush and Scott are both hesitant about Eli going. He's not trained for this. But Young points out that in order to survive, everyone, regardless of training or position, are going to have to step up. Young needs to know what Eli is made of. Eli really is the heart of this show. He's the character we can identify with. He's a normal guy and he's a fellow nerd. Plus, he's the good moral down-to-earth bloke amongst all the melodrama of the other characters. I really like him. And that's where part two ends, as they step through the gate. As I said, I originally watched this three-parter as one big movie. But I think I've yabbered on about it for long enough. We'll save part three for the next episode. I should be out getting some steps for my walk to Mordor challenge, but it's so hot at the moment. Summer doesn't usually hit Tasmania until January, and it's definitely hit in the last couple of days. Maybe I should swim to Mordor. I will do another Walk to Mordor episode sometime, but probably not for a little while. If you're new here, you may be interested to hear about my book series, Jewel of the Stars. Just like Stargate Universe, it focuses on a group of people trapped on a spaceship, who weren't planning for a long-term voyage. Unlike Destiny, it's a luxury cruise ship. They were only supposed to be on board for a week, but while they were away, Earth fell to an alien invasion, so now they can't go home. They're travelling through unexplored space. They may be the last free humans in the galaxy. 
The series is structured like a TV series. Seasons of six episodes. Each episode is a 30,000 word novella. So while shorter than a novel, it's still a decent read. There is an ongoing story arc through the whole series, but I aim to make each book a satisfying experience in its own right. You can check out the first episode for just 99 cents by going to books2read.com slash jewel, and that's the number two. Or you can get a free prequel story by going to adamdavidcollings.com slash free. And there's a G in Collings, it's Collins with a G. Always got to tell people about the G. I'll be back next week to talk about Air Part 3. Until then, have a great week. Live long and prosper. Make it so.